Well, good morning, church. Thank you guys so much for being present with us this morning. Uh, as we begin today, I want to start by uh, reading a prayer request that had been given to me just before service. Uh, one of our uh, visitors this morning, uh, RJ, has asked that we pray for her today, and so I'm going to uh, read this prayer, and, uh, and uh, would you please join me as we do that? God, I pray this morning uh, for all those, all your children, all your creation, God, in whatever stage of life we're in, wherever we find ourselves this morning, we pray that we would be open to you. God, specifically for our new friend, RJ, we pray for her health. Uh, we pray for her daughter-in-law as she's recovering and uh, for her grandson who's in the military. And we pray for her travels uh, that she's taking to North Carolina. And God, we pray that you would be with her. God, we pray that you would provide for her. We pray that if there's opportunities for us uh, to help, God, we pray that you would make those evident to us. God, for all of the concerns and cares of our heart, for all that we uh, are feeling this morning, for the joys, for the burdens, for the pain, and for all that you have given to us, God, we are grateful, and we pray that we would come to recognize you in every area of our lives. God, be with us this morning as we seek to follow you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our series on Lent, and before I really uh, dive into what I want to talk about this morning, uh, I want to uh, go back to the beginning and share why, uh, why Lent. Uh, why are we in this practice? Lent uh, is a practice that uh, Christians for centuries uh, ha have participated in, and because it's such a long-standing practice, and because there's so much uh, to it, that there might be many, many reasons that someone would come to this practice of Lent, this season of fasting and repentance, this season of preparation for the resurrection. Uh, so there are many reasons that someone might do that. But today, the reason that we are here, that we are gathered, that we are talking about this, is because we believe that through our attempts, through our, uh, our joyous attempts to become like Christ, that there is something beneficial, that there is something beautiful that we can do together as we uh, learn to give of ourselves, to give away of ourselves, to repent of the things that take us away from God. And so why Lent? Why Lent? Because we want to be like Christ. Uh, and so today, as we discuss, as we share together in this season of fasting and repentance, and as, as we seek to be transformed into the image of Christ— I hope that that will be your prayer as well, that this is uh, not about uh, a, a religious tradition, but that this is simply a practice that we can engage in, that is something that will be good for us, something that will help us and benefit us in becoming more and more like Christ. And so in the past couple of weeks, we've spent some time talking about those particular practices of fasting and repentance, and last week we talked about the idea that there is urgency in living this kind of resurrected life today. As we prepare to announce the resurrection at Easter, that there is an urgency, that yes, we are fasting and repenting during this season, that we are changing our hearts and our lives to be more like Christ. And yet, even today, even right now, we can live that out. And so today, I want to follow that up with, I think, what is a natural possibility, uh, that, uh, a natural possibility that exists that if we live this urgent type of life right now, that if we engage in the practice of living resurrected lives, the next step might be that we feel that we deserve God's attention that we deserve God's presence in our life, that we deserve for God to be with us. And I think that word, deserve, is such a dangerous word, especially when it comes to something that is religious in nature or spiritual in nature. When we talk about deserving something from God, we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble, can't we? And so today, our goal is not to talk about what we deserve, but to talk about what God has given to us graciously and how we can participate in that today. 
And so that word deserve is going to be all throughout uh, this sermon today. And I, I know that when I say that word that probably something comes to mind. Uh, a story, an event in your own life. It's not hard to imagine uh, if you have a young child or if you ever were a young child, which I think hits everybody in the room, uh, it, it, that young children feel like they deserve things from time to time. Have you noticed that? Uh, you're walking through the grocery store and uh, they, they see something that they want, a, a snack or a toy, and all of a sudden, I want that. Danielle shaking her head no. That she's never experienced that. She's, she has no idea what that's about. But if that child doesn't get what they feel they deserve, what's going to happen next? is a meltdown. Uh, there might be a meltdown right in the middle of that store. Now, it might not be with just children. It might happen uh, in your line of work. Uh, oh, this is dangerous. If you feel that you deserve that promotion, or you deserve that office that you've been aspiring to, if you deserve something and you don't get it, oh, what happens next is a falling out. Uh, you no longer are happy in your profession, in your job, with your coworkers or your employer. It might not happen in a job. It might be even more dangerous. It might happen in a marriage or in a family. That if you feel like you deserve something from someone within that group and you don't receive it, things are going to get sticky pretty quickly. So when we feel like we deserve something, there is a lot at stake, isn't there? Uh, it, it might be just a tantrum in, in the grocery store, but it might cause serious relational rifts. And when we come to church and we talk about God, and deserving something from God, this idea of deservedness becomes incredibly dangerous. Because if we feel like we deserve something and all of a sudden we don't get it, we might just find that our focus shifts from being on God to being on ourselves and what we did or didn't get and what we did or didn't deserve. So this idea of deserving is a dangerous one. And so when we talk about urgently living this resurrected life today, right now, as we participate in the life of Christ and as we seek to follow Jesus, if we feel like we deserve something, we might find that we aren't likely to get what we want. And when we don't get what we want, we no longer focus on Christ, on following Christ. Instead, we focus on our desires and our passions and our wants. So today I want to turn to a passage of Scripture. We've been uh, going through uh, various passages in the middle of the Gospel of Luke the past couple of weeks, and so I want to continue that practice. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 14, and uh, we're going to begin reading uh, there in verse 7 here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible this morning, but you would like to read along, uh, in the pews in front of you is a Bible. And you can grab one of those Bibles and turn to page 1622, and you'll find our passage for today uh, there. Uh, it should also be on the screen behind me, and yes, I'll even give you permission. Uh, if you have the Bible app or want to download the Bible app, you can pull your phone out and use that as well. Uh, so this is uh, Luke chapter 14, and we're going to start reading in verse 7. It says, when Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor, for someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat, and you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For all who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, when, a host, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or rich neighbors. For if you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled 
lame, and blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. Now, when one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, he said to Jesus, Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. Jesus replied, A certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people. When it was time for the dinner to begin, he sent his servants to tell the invited guests, Come, the dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, I bought a farm, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five teams of oxen, and I'm going to go check on them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the city's streets, the busy ones, and the side streets, and bring the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And the servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, Then go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in, so that my house will be filled. For I tell you, not one of those who were invited will taste of my dinner. So in this chapter, Jesus finds himself surrounded by various Jewish thought leaders, teachers, Pharisees. And he begins to notice uh, that they seem to uh, be arguing they seem to desire, they seem to want a certain place at the table. They, they keep acting as if uh, they are the ones who are to be mostly, most highly regarded, that they deserve the seats uh, near the head of the table, near the host, where they will be able to enjoy the conversation. They don't want to be at the end of the table where they can't hear, where they can't participate, where they're with the people who are lowly, who have come in off the street and, and found a place at the table. They want to be highly regarded. And so Jesus tells them this parable of warning and says, when you come in, don't seek the highest place, because if you seek the highest place and you come to find that someone else has a higher status than you, then you'll be asked to move down. How, how shaming that would be, how, how difficult of, of an experience that would be. So Jesus says, instead, take the lowest place. That way, your host will come and approach you and invite you closer. Now, the danger of this parable, of course, is that uh, if you take the low place, your motivation for doing that will be that you will still get the high place. This is not what Jesus is advising. Jesus is not telling them this parable so that their motivations for sitting near the host, for being highly regarded, can be approved of. Jesus is not seeking to uh, rank them according to their status. Now, of course, when uh, one of the guests uh, at this dinner approaches Jesus and says, happy will those be who come to God's table to feast in God's kingdom, what he's really saying is when God seats us at the table, we'll find out exactly where everyone is supposed to be seated. And so, of course, this man is saying uh, those who, who regard themselves as high, uh, as above others, uh, they will be, of course, seated in the higher places. So Jesus has to dive in and tell them another story, another parable. And during this parable, of course, uh, the, the invited guests, the people of honor who, who have been sought out, who have been invited, they are making excuse after excuse as to why they can't come. Uh, I've got a field I have to go check on. I have oxen. I, I've just gotten married. I can't come to this feast that God has prepared. And so God sends out his servant and says, go and invite anyone and everyone. He sends his servant uh, to the highways, to the, to the back roads, everywhere he can find someone. He says, go and bring them in, for my table will not be empty. I must fill my table. There is room for all. Now, of course, I hope that you noticed the kinds of people that in both the first story and the second story that Jesus is telling us are the ones who will be privileged. Because this is key for us to understand that our motivation in hearing these parables should not be that we still get the best seat at the table. Did you notice who Jesus, he says it twice. He, he says, invite these types of people. And they're people who have no honor 
no status. They're people who have no right to sit at the head of the table, and yet those are the people that Jesus specifically invites and says, bring them to God's table. Not, can you sit at a higher seat, a place of honor, but instead, who else can you invite in to this dinner? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He says it twice. These are the types of people that Jesus wants us to invite to his table. See, deservedness is not a criteria for finding a seat at God's table. If deservedness was a criteria, then we would all be out of luck, for none of us deserve to be seated at God's table. And yet God has invited us anyways. And so now, rather than squabbling and fighting over who gets to sit at the higher seat, instead, we find that there are still seats open at God's table. And God has sent us out to go and find those who are least deserving of it. For God's table is truly good news for those who are in most need of it. God's table is good news for those who are in most need of hearing good news. And so God sends us out. God invites us to go and find those who need Christ. Of course, this is a beautiful aspect of this parable. Because, yes, Jesus is telling this parable of of a host and and guests. And, of course, the, the meaning is obvious. The host is truly God. And the guests are those who God has created. God's creation. And when we come to see that Jesus himself is the invitation, we begin to unlock the meaning of the parable. That Jesus is our invitation. That Jesus is the one who is seeking us to come and join God at the table at the dinner that has been prepared for each of us, not because we deserve it, but because God is good to us, because God loves his creation, because God seeks for us to be joined together with him in communion. And so Jesus is the invitation, the invitation to come and be seated with God. And so when we talk about deservedness, we must change that word. We must change that understanding, no longer from what do we deserve, but instead So what has God given to us? And how can we take that gift and give it to others as well? And this is why Lent can be so helpful to us. Because Lent asks us to examine ourselves, to to look at our lives and to understand what are the ways that we aren't doing this. And how can we begin to do them again? How can we begin to practice the resurrected life? How can we begin to live as Jesus lived? How can we follow Christ fully? in our lives. And of course, at the center of it is the invitation that there is room at God's table and that Jesus himself is the invitation. What Jesus does here is he begins uh, to show the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those who are present at this dinner, what it looks like to live in this upside-down kingdom. And the kingdom truly is upside-down Because this is not a kingdom that's all about the king. I mean, truly, it is all about the king. We know that. But the king has sacrificed himself for us. It's a kingdom where God is willing to give God's own life for the citizens. In what kingdoms of this world have you ever seen that take place? Where the king is willing to give his life first and foremost, to sacrifice for us. This is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom where God is constantly giving his power away, giving his status away, choosing rather than to be God enthroned, to be God incarnate, God with us, God who is willing to go to the cross and die 
And trust me, we're nearly there in the story. In just a few weeks, we'll, we'll talk about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We'll announce his resurrection, that he conquered death, that death had no hold over him. And that truly, this resurrected way of living is not just a one-time event that took place then, but it's something that God offers to each one of us through Jesus. There is a way for us to let our selfishness, our deservedness pass away, and instead to be resurrected into life with Christ. It's not easy to do this. It's not easy to give up our lives. It's not easy to follow the example of Christ. And yet, that's what we're called to do. We are called to live as Christ lived, to do as Christ did. And so over the course of the past few weeks, I've been inviting several of our members and and people that we love and care about to come and share how to do this. Uh, How do we give up our lives for the sake of somebody else? How do I practice repentance? How do I fast so that I can look more and more like Christ? I'm especially grateful to all those who have participated so far, and I hope that these little interviews have been beneficial to you. I hope that they've been helpful. I hope that they've challenged you and caused you to think of different ways that you can follow Christ. And today, I think uh, the interview that we have for you uh, will be especially impactful. Uh, I think it will be really helpful. And so I'd like to go ahead and invite Nora Gravois uh, to come and join me on the stage. Nora is one of our new members, and Nora is passionate about sacrificing for others. Nora is passionate about, about, uh, about living this resurrected life right now. How can we do that today? And so I want to ask her a couple of questions, and I'm so grateful, Nora, uh, for you being here today and, and being willing to do this. So I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, first, uh, you are kind of a newer member here, and so uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about uh, your passions, your, your profession. Tell us about your training. Uh, who are you? Who is Nora? What is at the center of who you are? That's a very scary question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I feel very vulnerable um, because this is something that's very um, important to me. Um, I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for 30 plus years, and um, God has taken me to places I never knew my career was going to take me. Um, He gave me lots of opportunities to learn, lots of opportunities to be involved in um, some really big events and um, put a lot of letters behind my name. But none of that is important. None of that is something to brag about because um, he actually, God gave me the best education I could have ever asked for and one that um, really changed my life when I took care of my mom Hmm. who had vascular dementia. I always tell people that despite all those letters after my name, I got my PhD when God brought my mom to live with us. So um, as a social worker of 30 years, I've just had some incredible opportunities and education. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned your mom, and uh, you really learned uh, how to do this from your experience with her. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier this morning that your, your entire life was preparation for that moment. So tell us the sto- a little bit of the story about your mom and taking care of her and what, what that looked like. Okay, well, it kind of goes back to my career. Um, early in my career, I thought I was destined to do some really great things <laughs> on a political level and all of this. And so all this preparation... The, the job that led to a different job that led to a different class that led to a different degree that led to a different license, all of that, I thought was God answering that selfish prayer. And what I learned was that after my mom died, I mean, after my dad died, very suddenly as a caregiver, um, God gave me the opportunity to really be humbled about what it means to sacrifice. 
And all those prayers and all those cool and exciting things that I had done, they were not for me. (laughs) They were intended for his purpose. Because God can give us really fabulous things, but none of it is for me. None of it is for you. It's all got a bigger purpose, a bigger vision that's for him. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your dad taking care of your mom and the transition uh, from him uh, being the primary caretaker and then his sudden death uh, to you and and Mike being the primary caregivers. Um, My mom was diagnosed in 2010, and so my dad um, took care of her all of that time. You know, I was getting all this education and not once put the clues together about my own mom. And um, I really kind of had a Damascan moment, you know, when your eyes just go, oh, my goodness, that makes sense. Um, My mom was known for her biscuit making. In Camp County, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Texas, everybody in Camp County knew about her biscuits. People would stop on their way to work. Um, my, My friends from school would stop and get a biscuit before school. My brother's friends, before they went hunting, everybody knew Miss Joy had biscuits ready by 6 a.m. every morning, and they were incredible biscuits. They were uh, really good. And when she started having trouble making her biscuits, that was the moment for me that realized this is more than just forgetfulness. This is more than just helping her. She really needs help. And my dad stepped up and did a beautiful job. Unfortunately, he died suddenly without any notice, was in perfect health, confused his own doctors, um, And I realized that he had given all of himself. Myself and my siblings would come down on the weekends to try to help out. You know, we're going to help out Dad every once in a while when it's good for us, when it's convenient, that kind of thing. And we're really doing a good thing because we're helping Dad take care of Mom on the weekends when it's good for us. (laughs) My dad was living a sacrificial life taking care of her every day, every moment, And he kept all of that to himself, like most caregivers do. Um, Caregivers, like my dad, are willing to just give, 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 and give because their entire focus is no longer on themselves but on the quality of life for this other person. And that is sacrificial living, I learned. Um, And so when dad died suddenly, there was never a question that Mike and I would bring her home with us. Um, I had all the education you know, had all these stories, all this experience. God had prepared me, but he had not. He had given me lots of information to draw on, but his real lesson came when mom moved in with us. His real humbling of my pride, all these good things that I had, quote, accomplished, that was all nothing. Because um, words with a clowning gang, that's not love, mm. right? And so God taught me a lot about sacrifice. When mom moved in with us and it was no longer a convenience or a once in a while or every now and then, um, but it was a 24-7 uh, opportunity. Yeah. You use words like sacrifice and that your dad burned himself up. Mm-hmm. Tell us why you use those words and how have you learned to use those words? Okay. Um, Of course, all of this came over, uh, you know, the last 10, 12, 13 years of processing that God does in our hearts. He humbled me quite a bit. Um, I have a truth friend that's been my friend for 25 years. She speaks truth into me, and I'm able to speak truth into her, even when it hurts. And she had made a statement one time when I was poor, poor, pitiful me. Um, She had said that um, sacrifice is not a convenient decision. 
It's a choice to love someone as Jesus did. And first I was offended, but then I thought, okay, God's got something to say to me here. So I started looking at all the different examples of sacrifice made, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I discovered that God was trying to show me what a burnt sacrifice it was, a burnt offering that is talked about both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This all-consuming, all-encompassing release of self for the betterment of the other person or another. Um, that is the definition of Christ's love. That is the parallel of what he did for us is just we're, we're burnt, burning what we have to give as a complete sacrifice for the life of the other person. Our identity, our want, our dreams, you know, what we want to do. But it's not even really a sacrifice because it's one that's made out of devotion. I found out that a burnt offering has four characteristics. Caregiving has those same four characteristics. It's a sacrifice made of devotion. It's a sacrifice that costs a life. It's a sacrifice that's done out of a sense of the blessing received. I'm receiving freedom. I'm receiving salvation. I'm receiving something from this. And it's an all-consuming, all-encompassing, burnt offering. And so when we use words like that and when we say things like, oh, I love this person so much, I would do anything for them. Would we really? Would we let ourselves become so small and that person become so significant that it's not even a chore? People say things like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you're doing that. When Christ went to the cross, would we ever say to him, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you're doing that? Because we're in shock, we're in awe, but it's out of devotion, not even a question that I'm going to do this for you. That caregiving becomes care living. It's living with the mindset that it's no big deal at all. I'm just going to, I'm going to do this because it's better for her. I'm not, I'm nothing. You know, life becomes trivial. The things that we hold on to in this world, the materialism, the possession of things, the accumulation of things, the the tangible things we touch, they become so trivial when we empty ourselves. Because then that gives us such an opportunity to be closer to God than we could have ever imagined. Yeah. Uh, Earlier today you said uh, something along the lines of that when we truly participate in that care living, that's our best opportunity to learn what it means to be like Christ. Absolutely. Which I think is beautiful. Now, today, uh, looking out here, we've got some folks uh, that have opportunities to live this type of life, of a, of a caregiver, somebody who lives this out for somebody else. Mm-hmm. We have other folks who, uh, they, they haven't had that experience, they, they, don't, uh, they don't know what that's about. So what encouragement, what advice would you give uh, to the people sitting here about how to do this, whether they have someone uh, that they're taking care of at home or, mm-hmm. or, or from a distance or, or not? Mm-hmm. Um, And caregiving doesn't involve me being the one to actually physically do the work. Sometimes it's learning to let go of pride or this sense of um, it's up to me, it's up to me to do it. It's it's about allowing other people to live that care with you. And it's about helping people along the way that God puts before you. There's so many examples in our lives where if we say no when an opportunity is presented, we deny ourselves of any blessing that that experience might give us. Care living is when you find out about a neighbor that really needs some help and it's really not convenient, but you decide you're going to do something. 
Care living is taking care of a loved one who might be ill or who might need support, or who might need resources or something that you have to give and you're the only one that can give it at that time. It's not about waiting until it's good on my schedule or let me check my calendar. It's really, it's a, it's an, a, a characteristic that Jesus said, yes, I'm going to save you. This is how. And so it's discovering the how. How can I make myself smaller so that you are elevated, so that you get your needs met. Um, and there's so many blessings that come from that. When we finally say, yes, I'll help, or yes, I'll do, you're actually sacrificing a little bit. And when the caregiver or that person with pride says, yes, I'm going to let you help me, that's letting them in on the sacrifice. Um, it's, it's being an opportunity to exchange gifts of blessing. It's also a chance to tell Satan, no, you're not alone. Because what does Satan love to do when we feel burdened by things? You're the only one that feels that way. You're all by yourself. There's nobody out there to help you. And so when, when we step up and say, yes, I'm going to help in this way, whatever way we choose to do, that's denouncing Satan's efforts to discourage that caregiver or that person who's living that life of sacrifice. Because care livers get discouraged, and Satan knows exactly how to attack them. And so the blessings that come from a sacrificial life are so far greater than what it is we're sacrificing. Mm. And that is the gift of the burnt offering. It's redemption. It's a renewal. It's a revival. It's a, of a new life, a new perspective, a new way of thinking things. So small things that we could do that might be an inconvenience to us, but for somebody else, it's got to cost us to be a true sacrifice. Um, but that... I think, is the parallel of what Jesus did. He was all in. God was all in when he made the decision, let's go down to earth. Jesus said, okay, I'll be the one to do it. And they said, oh, by the way, we'll need you to pass on the cross. Oh, I'll be willing to do that. You know, there was never a no, let me check my calendar. Or no, let me, hmm, let me see if that's good for me. It was just, oh, yes, God, you've given me this opportunity. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want to do it because I want to honor you. And I think that's, that's what people can, can do. Yeah. Okay, one final question, because uh, uh, I know there are people here who, uh, like you said, are being discouraged. Uh, their situation, uh, what they're going through is mm-hmm. discouraging. And so uh, you uh, and several others have a plan in place uh, to maybe provide some of that encouragement. So share with them what's coming up and, uh, and, and hopefully some good news for some folks who are in desperate need of it. Yeah. Um, the elders have approached me about um, maybe starting a support group or a resource network or, or something that is supportive to caregivers in our family here. Um, that I'm very, I have experienced the blessing of support from the church family. That's another blessing from the burnt offering is the um, intimate, supportive relationships that are gained because we've done that. And so as a church body, we want to somehow look into starting, developing, forming a support group for caregivers of any time. I'm going to say care livers, people who are living a life of sacrificial giving of themselves for the betterment of somebody else. And so um, I know next Sunday there's a lot going on. I know between the luncheon and the main street, but 10 or 15 minutes, if anybody is interested in any way in being part of developing some type of support system for our church families, but also the community out there, give us a chance to bring Christ's ultimate sacrifice out there. 
but to have some type of supportive group or supportive network here offered by this church family. Um, we're just going to meet. Let's see who's interested. Then we'll decide on a time to meet for an actual meeting. But maybe 10, 15 minutes next Sunday, immediately after services, just out there in the foyer. I'll be standing back there. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's great. So I know that uh, there are some here who uh, have somebody that you're taking care of or that you're concerned about and that you want to be there for. So uh, please, if that's you, uh, come and find out what what you can do, how you can be a part of that, and how we can serve you as a church family and how we can be a part of that in your life. Uh, Would you guys please give Nora a round of applause? So... To be a resurrected follower of Jesus means to give of our lives, means to sacrifice of ourself for someone else. And this is the example that we see Christ giving to us. We don't do it because our motivation is to get a better seat at God's table. We do it because there is still room at God's table. And we want to invite others to come and be there for the meal that God has prepared for us. The invitation is Christ, his life, his death, his sacrifice. And ultimately, what we'll announce in a couple of weeks, his resurrection. And we want to live that out in our lives. We want to speak the resurrection to those who are most in need of hearing good news. We want to offer life where before there was only death. Here in a moment, we're going to continue our worship, and we're going to lead into a time uh, at the table, at God's table, where we share together in this meal. And so as we uh, sing a couple of songs before we do that, I would invite you, if, if right now, if you're in a season of life that is particularly difficult and you need some encouragement, our elders are going to gather around the room and they would just love uh, to, to speak prayers over you, to, to let you know that they care about you, that they are praying for you. They might even come and seek you out where you're sitting uh, and, and uh, come and pray with you. And of course, if you would like to join in this resurrected movement, this way of living as Christ lived, I would love to talk with you about baptism, so please come and and visit with me as we stand together and worship.